When we come together like this, something is supposed to be accomplished. God has designed worship for our benefit to help build us up and encourage us and to allow God to be praised, God's name to be exalted and held up and honored. And as we come together, we challenge one another, speaking to one another in words and psalms and spiritual songs and hymns, and we, we talk to each other and we learn about each other. And when New Testament worship is accomplished, God is glorified. He's held up and, and honored. The sinner is purified. Our association together with the Word of God and with each other, it builds us up and encourages us, it relieves us, it refreshes us. And someone is evangelized who may come into our assembly who is uninitiated or unfamiliar, and yet they learn from the Word of God and from the preaching and the teaching of God's Word in Bible classes and in our worship together. They learn something that teaches them the truth and shows them their stance before God. And also, the church is edified as we come together like this and we worship and it, it helps us and it refreshes us. And, and the intent of God designing worship is to help us to show Him our love for Him and to be able to express our faith in Him. We don't have God pictured in the Scriptures as ever standing on the horizon, dancing around trying to impress people with the idea that if you don't like this, and let me try something else and do the old soft shoe as we picture it, da, 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 and, and dances off and says, how about this then? But instead, when He sends the light of the world, the bread of life, the darling of heaven, the rose of Sharon, the bright and morning star, and He sends Him to the earth, and He comes to His own, and His own received Him not, and they reject Him and despise Him. And when the condemnation comes, that this is the condemnation, John 3, that light has come into the world, but you love the darkness rather than the light because your ways were evil. We find that our coming together in worship has an effect on us. It helps us to be stronger and to be re re revived and, and refreshed. And it seems as though, even though God is not in the business of trying to impress people, it does appear from 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul, the apostle, writes about our assembly together as though it makes some difference to at least consider the outsider that may come into our assembly. As Steve read a moment ago, listen to three or four verses here, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 14. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and an ungifted man or an unbeliever enters, will they not say, you're mad? They don't understand it. They can't figure this out. It's like going to a Hispanic assembly or to a uh, French assembly or, or something else and you're listening to this lingo going on and you're like, well, what, what are they even talking about? And then we hear somebody say Christos and we say, well, that's probably Christ. We don't get the rest of it. And so Paul says, if they come in there and, and, and you're all speaking gibberish or you're all speaking in tongues, actual languages, but they don't know the language, they're not going to get it. And so he says, if all prophesy or teach, rather, an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, he will fall on his face. Or should we emphasize, he will fall on his face. And he will worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So the idea here is that someone who comes in will be, will be edified and taught and instructed in the ways and they understand what's happening and it convicts them in their heart. And then they too will say, well, God is great. And they'll fall down and they'll worship and they realize they too are sinners in need of God's grace. And so the idea of worship is to have an effect on outsiders, but also on the insiders, the, the veterans in the faith. And we find that there are several ways that this happens. And, and one way is that when we worship together, our worship becomes a window through which we see God. It's like being outside in the nature at night. 
Um, I'm from Logan County, Boonville, Arkansas, and Mount Magazine is just right there a stone's throw away. And you go up on that mountain, some 2,300-something feet, you're like a half a mile closer to the heavens. But at night, without the ambient light of the cities, you can see the stars almost as though you can touch them. And as Jonathan referred to that last week in one of his hikes stories he was telling about, the, the awesome nature of God and how Abraham must have seen that sight and, and God said, count those stars if you can. And, and in that covenant relationship, he made the promise to make his descendants as numberless as the stars. And so the heavens declare the glory of God when we're out there in, in, in the world and in, in nature. And in Psalm 8, the psalmist reflected on that. And he said, when I consider the work of your hands, the heavens, the, this firmament there, when I consider the creation... Then I think about myself. Who am I? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. And so when we contemplate the vastness of the universe and the great creation, it does something to us and it causes us to think that when we stand by the ocean, we still feel small. We still feel like there's something out there. There's a great God out there that's invisible just beyond the azure blue, a God concealed from human sight. And as Hebrews 4 says... Every house is builded by some man, but the builder and the maker of all things is God. And when we come together and worship, we talk about this sort of thing and we read it from the Scriptures. We sing about it and express it openly and express our faith. You can go up here and look at the old mill and say Justin Matthews or whoever built that old mill. And you can know that the millstone in that thing came from Cagle's Mill from Highway 7 just north of Dover and was brought in there as an addition. And you say, well, this... this uh, Atlanta Falcons Stadium was built by these men, and this there's the chief engineer here. And you look at all these things. You look at the, the, the skyscrapers in Dubai or someplace, and you say, wow, who, somebody built that. Every house is built by some man or somebody. But the builder and the maker of all things is God. And in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. And so out there in the rocks and the trees and the skies and the seas and all the beautiful nature, we see God explained and exclaimed to us and and his invisible nature is known based on the things that are seen that are visible but then we read in the scriptures about jesus and how that jesus came to the earth from heaven and he shows us the way back to god and as philip and some of the others said lord show us the father and it'll be sufficient and jesus said have i been so long with you philip and you've not known me and and he explained who that has seen me has seen the father And he goes on to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. And so in the Scriptures, we read of Jesus. And as we just sang, tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. And week after week, first day of the week after first day of the week, over and over again, we come together. It should never become commonplace. We should never become careless in our worship. And we're studying about Jesus, the Son of God. And the Bible itself shows us God. In Isaiah 40 the prophet is expressing the idea, who is, who is as smart as God? Who else besides God has measured the universe? And he pictures him there with a measuring rod laying out the stars and laying out the corners of the universe and the, the establishment there. And when we read from all the way back to, from Genesis to maps, we see in there that the stories in the Bible, Joseph and Abraham and Jacob and all those people, Daniel, all those people is the story of the God of Daniel, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, And all the way through, it's about even the story of the prodigal son. Here's this runaway boy. But what is the story really about, or just as much about? It's about the father who receives this penitent sinner 
back home and loves him and forgives him. And so it's the Father who receives us. That's what Jesus was teaching. Yes, you all commit sin, but you come back to the Father and He'll run out there and He'll meet you and He'll let you come back because He never stopped loving you. And He never moved. He was always in His throne in heaven. And so in worship, all these truths are brought to mind and brought into focus as we recite over and over these, these truths coming from the Scripture. So our worship together actually allows us sometimes to see God. If we're looking for Him, it's a window through which we see God. But not only that, after we see Him, we find that sort of transforms into a mirror in which we see ourselves. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, that's what happened when Isaiah had this vision of the temple of God. He said in the year of Uzziah, he would remember the events associated with this vision. He said, I was in the temple and here the whole place started shaking. It was filled with smoke. The lintels of the door were rattling and shaking. And here were these seraphim flying around, each having six wings. With two he covered his eyes and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew and he cried out with a loud voice, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He's worthy to receive praise and honor and glory from men. And when I saw that, I thought about myself. He said, man, I've had it. I'm a man of unclean lips. Verse uh, 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so he said, now I'm, I'm in a fix. Now I realize with the holiness of God before my eyes, I see that I'm not so holy after all. In fact, I'm, I live in a society of unholy people. Now what am I going to do? And the angel takes the tongs and from the fire he takes a coal and he puts it to my lips and, and now I'm cleansed. And so the Lord says, who can I send? Now he's thinking, I've been to church and I got revived. I've, I've seen the holiness of God. Now I've been purified. And so I said, here I am, send me. I'm ready now to make a difference out here in the world. And then not only that, James refers to this very idea of looking into the perfect law of liberty or the Word of God, that it becomes a mirror in which we see ourselves. And so we read about the prodigal son or about dozens of other things and we see ourselves in those stories. And Well, that's talking about me. In verse 23 of James chapter 1, James says, But prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what manner of person he was or what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Here's an obvious reference to something that everybody's familiar with. And that's checking ourselves out in a mirror. Um, I've got this thing. I'll just confess a little bit here, but I've got this vanity thing or something. I don't like my hair messed up. But it seems like any time I'm outside, like walking from the car into Walmart or somewhere, the wind is blowing just a little from this side, and it makes it stand up. It just seems like no matter what. And when I come back out of the store, it's going from the other way, so it stands it back up. So I check it out all the time. And so sure enough, in my paranoia about that, I checked it when I came in for the building, and I went and looked in the mirror and fixed it. But I forgot to look since then if anything might have puffed it. <laughs> so now I'm wondering, is my hair laying down right? But those are the vanity things. We, we say, well, let me see if I've got this pimple. Let me see in the mirror what, what do I need to fix here. And then we go away, and maybe the wind blows again, or something else changes, and we need to go look again. And so... James compares this idea of looking at the Word of God and going, yeah, that's cool, I read that verse last week, or yeah, I remember that in Bible class, and we got it memorized, and so we just, hmm, go on our way without really letting it sink in or letting it make much difference. And James says, don't do that. If you look into this law of liberty, 
then don't become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, and then you'll be blessed in what you do. And James, or, or, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, much like what James says, he says that we're looking at something, we're looking at as like a, through a glass darkly, dimly. We don't really see clearly right now in this world, in this body. We don't see the invisible world very clearly. But he goes on to say that in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3 that we all are beholding as in a mirror or as in a glass this image and we are being transformed into that same image from glory unto glory, from this state of this level of glory to the glory that awaits us in our transformed bodies, our translated bodies. And so worship then becomes a window through which we see God and seeing God we begin to focus and see ourselves as what we are exactly before God. But also worship is a network through which we connect with each other. And that's part of the design of the idea of coming together as an assembly, as an, a, a group of people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in Hebrews 10, verse 24, there's an interesting word there. In the English, it just says, consider one another. But in the Greek text, there's a, there are several word pictures involved in what the Bible is talking about when it says, you are to consider one another. The word in the Greek is uh, it's a funny-sounding word, but it's katatoneo. But it means to learn thoroughly. In one case, when Jesus said, consider, learn, you need to learn thoroughly the lilies of the field. Because those little flowers represent the glory of God. They toil not, neither do they spin, and yet even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Oh, ye of little faith. And so he says you need to consider, like under a microscope, you need, to, you need to learn thoroughly this idea of how the glory of God is manifested in His creation and then beyond that in heaven itself. But then it means also to perceive clearly, to understand something, to perceive clearly. And so Jesus uses that same word when He says, why do you look at the moat, the splinter that's in your brother's eye, and you do not consider you don't, you don't think about this. You don't focus. You don't perceive clearly that there's a beam or a log in your own eye. First, take out this beam, and then you'll see more clearly how to help your brother get the little splinter out of his eye. And so consider this. You do not consider the beam that's in your own eye. It also means in the third place to account closely. In Romans 4, verse 19, Abraham did not account closely his own body as being dead, and even though the promise came from God in his later years. And so he, he accounted closely the promise of God. And it also means to thoroughly discover or behold. Here is in Hebrews 10, verse 24, to discover or to behold. And that's part of our reason behind the Sunday night Gen 1 sessions, uh, listening to each other, talking to each other, talking things over. What brought you to Summers Avenue? And so on and so forth. I remember one uh, young lady one night at the table where I was sitting we were talking about our backgrounds and how we got to this place at this time in our lives and whatever. And she said, well, talking about when she was growing up and the advice her mother gave her, she said uh, she wanted her to marry a faithful Christian. But she said, you need to marry a three times a weaker. And that somehow just stuck in my mind. She said that's what she found. But anyway, that sort of thing, how are you going to figure that out? You don't find it in this assembly. You, unless you're talking to somebody and, and, and uh, as the Bible says, no one knows the thoughts of a man save the spirit of the man that is in him unless he tells somebody else what's in his heart. And so this idea of considering one another and, and coming together in worship becomes a network where we understand and get to know each other and consider each other. And at all times then there must prevail the spirit of forgiveness. So Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 3, you've put off the old man, the old self. Now the lifestyle you live is like this. Verse 12, 
So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now we meddle just a little bit because don't we all know people who can't do this? Don't we see empty places where people could not do this? In Matthew 18 and verse 21 and 22, how many times should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, not seven. Seventy times seven. And that's not a literal number. But the idea was there, if we tried to take it literal, that would be 490 times, I believe. And so if my brother offends me every day for a year and four months, every day, I still have to forgive, I'm supposed to forgive him. And yet he wasn't even saying, go a year and four months. He said, don't put a lid on it. And yet, according to Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24, in Jesus' great sermon, he says, if you're at the altar about to offer your gift, and you remember there that you have ought against your brother, leave your gift at the altar. First go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and get religion. Then come back and offer your gift. And how many get hurt and offended, and in their foolish pride can't let go and be reconciled. And so the devil scores another one as he pulls us apart and fragments us. Worship assumes a right right relationship with our brothers and sisters. And so if we can't be in a right relationship, then we don't come to worship together sometimes. That's a tough one. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of discerning the body, speaking of the body of Christ hanging on the cross. But there's another body, our assembled body of believers, that we tarry for one another and consider one another during the Lord's Supper. We pay attention and try to be spiritual on behalf of one another. So worship is a a window through which we see God. It's a mirror in which we see ourselves. It's a network through which we connect with our brethren. But in the final and fourth place, worship is a lifeline through which we reach the lost. Snatching men out of the fire, as Peter would call it. Isn't it amazing that even in our modern world today, that we turn on the TV news, and right now, this hour, mankind is dealing with fire and wind and water and earthquakes and hot molten rocks and trying to save people and trying to rescue people and trying to to keep safety there. And it's just an ongoing thing. And in the idea of the spiritual life of the church, there's this ongoing battle, this ongoing challenge that Satan as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. And there's this challenge to reach the lost before they are totally lost. And in the assembly, as we read there in 1 Corinthians 14, a visitor will be taught and convicted And yet, even though that's part of the design of worship, that it's evangelistic in nature by the songs we sing and the things that are preached and taught and expressed, that we have to be careful not to let this base of operation become the field of operation. So it's not just whoever we get in the building that can be reached, but we go out to the Dominican Republic, as we have a group right now, or to Jamaica, we have a couple over there right now, and uh, the support we have for people in Brazil and Cambodia and all around the world, that we try to help this outreach so that we do what Jesus said, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. The the feast is prepared and all things are ready, but some are not coming, so go invite them and, and bring them in. So there's this reciprocal thing. Bring them in, worship together, teach them, evangelize them. The hearts are disclosed and they worship God and then go out to the highways and hedges and teach and spread the seed of the kingdom. Who can approach God is a question of the Scriptures. Who, who can get it right? Who, can, who would dare go see God? Just walk up and say hi. 
Who can go to God? Who can climb the hill of the Lord? And the answer is, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Oh, what a challenge, what a, what a burden, what, a, what an almost impossible thing for me, for you, to have a pure heart, not just now and then, and not just during the communion, but a pure heart all the time, in every relationship, everywhere you go, and to have clean hands. Those are the people who go and see God. Song number 511 we sang together a while ago, written by one of our brethren. Oft we come together, oft we sing and pray. Here we bring our offering on this holy day. May we keep in memory all that Thou hast said. May we truly worship as we eat the bread. May we all in spirit, all with one accord, take this cup of blessing given by the Lord. Help us, Lord, Thy love to see. And may we all in truth and spirit worship Thee. When we come together, it ought to be in our conscious minds that what we're participating in here is intended to have an effect not only just on ourselves and not just to impress us and see if we like what we heard and saw, but that we're here to worship the living God and then in that worship it touches the hearts of other people so that they are brought in tune with the Spirit of the living God and they see their true nature before God. And if there needs to be corrections, they'll make those corrections in their life. It may be that today in this audience this morning, during this hour, you've been thinking about doing what needs to be done in your life to get right with God. It may be that you're not yet a Christian and haven't obeyed the gospel and been saved from your sins by being baptized into Christ, enjoying the benefits of the blood of Christ. You can do that today. Everything is ready. It may be that as a Christian you find that you're failing and falling short in some way, or maybe you're weak and want prayers for encouragement and strength, or maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. If there's any way that I can help you this morning or we can help you as a congregation to pray with you and for you or baptize you into Christ, or if you're looking for a church to make a difference and be a place to work and worship and and be a disciple in this world that reaches out and snatches men out of the fire, this is a good place to be a part of this. You can let that be known this morning. We're going to stand now and, and sing a song of encouragement. And if you want to come to Jesus, would you come now as we stand and as we sing this song?